0: Friends, we are indeed in our Bibles in Acts chapter 9. There's a remarkable pair of paragraphs, and there's a great miracle to behold in here. Um, but it might be not what you think originally. There are some literal miracles here, but I think the true miracle is deeper in what God is doing in these disciples. And so I'm going to read for us from Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Jesus, you are alive, and you bring new life. You bring resurrection life to us and to this place where we serve. And so I pray we behold your power, even as we are becoming your disciples day by day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a number of different directions you can go with these couple of paragraphs and these miracles, but I want to highlight that word that keeps occurring in these paragraphs, and that is the word disciple, because we hear that Tabitha is referred to as a disciple, and then those who go and fetch Peter to bring him back, they're referred to as disciples. We know that Peter himself is a disciple. And as a church body, we desire to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church, and at the core of that is what is a disciple and what is God making us into. And so I just want to look at discipleship from several different angles as we see these two disciples ministering where God has placed them. You got very different people, very different places, very different calls, yet both are centered on Jesus. Both are disciples who are growing up into him. So the first point I want to make is that both are unique disciples of Jesus. They're unique. If you read the book of Acts straight through from where we started to this point, you realize very quickly the interchangeability of Jesus' disciples. Like Jesus stands at the center, he doesn't move, but the disciple who's in front of you doing his work, that person changes all the time. I mean, we started reading, and chapters two, three, four, five. it's all about Peter, and kind of John, his sidekick, and it feels like a biography about Peter and the cool things that Peter does, but then immediately the book changes, and chapters 6 and 7, it's all about Stephen and the ministry that God gave Stephen, and so we settle into Stephen and the exciting things that Stephen does, but then chapter 8, boom, we switch again. Now we're looking at Philip and Philip in Samaria and Philip with the Ethiopian. And then in chapter nine, it's Saul's conversion. So we gear up for Saul, but then the back half of chapter nine, we're back to Peter and now to Tabitha. You see that just like constant rotation of disciples. The big biography of the big C church worldwide, and the little biographies of the little C local churches that we are a part of are never, ever, ever contained in a single person, a single personality profile, a single gift mix. God uses many members many gifts, many avenues, many means to refract his incredible glory in this place. I don't know if we have any hockey fans in here. Are there any hockey fans in the South? Anybody dig it? We got one, two, three, okay? Three hockey fans in South Carolina. I don't understand the sport. I have watched it on TV twice I don't think I saw the ball on the field the entire first half. It's just like moving so quickly. So I don't get into it, but what I do love about hockey is substitutions because unlike basketball, you call a timeout and then you move your players around. Hockey, you do it on the fly, right? You speed over to the wall, you jump over the wall. Other guys jump in. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's three, and it's just this incredible flow of people moving, and it's really cool to watch if you know what you're doing. That's what the church looks like. Like Jesus is here, he's steady, he's stable, he's not going anywhere, same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's calling out to the church, hey, I need you, you, and you, you're going to minister to this person. And I need you, you, and you, I want you to show us what radical generosity looks like. And I need a few of you in the back to show us what it looks like to suffer in Jesus' name. I stand here. You are on the move. Disciples are interchangeable, and we will see God's glory refracted in how the church operates. That's totally what's happening with these two disciples. Very different people in very different places with very different calls. We've got Peter on the one hand who has this national ministry in Israel. I mean, he's a northerner who's now on a prominent speaking tour in the South. He's going from place to place. Everybody knows who Peter is. It was just decided he wasn't going to do mercy ministry anymore even though he had wanted to. He's now going to be focused on evangelism, prayer, the word. That's what he's doing. He's seen the conversions. He's doing the baptism. That's his role. And Tabitha is a totally different person. I mean, she's in a very small context, a small city, a humble mercy ministry among widows. Both lives are claimed by Jesus. Both of them are disciples. Both of them are sold out for Jesus, and their lives and their callings could not look more different from each other. Peter, when he thinks about this, he speaks about this profound reality in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, when he says, As each of us has received a gift, every believer has received God's gift as we have received it, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. God has this incredible varied grace that he has spread in our body amongst us. And the question we ask ourselves this morning, disciple, what is your place in God's varied grace? Have you found it? Are you owning your role in this place? Are you finding contentment in the role that God has assigned to you? Now that's wild because everybody in this room has a different personality. People in this room have different natural gifts and people in this room have different spiritual gifts that God has given us. Most profoundly, all of us have come from very, very different places in our family and our life history. You show up on Sunday morning, you see these smiling faces, and we kind of all think that we had a similar childhood, and then you dig into each other's stories, and you realize very quickly, we have some very different stories in this room. More than that, God has placed us in very, very different circumstances today. There are thousands of variables of how God has made us and equipped us, and brought us to this point we are standing in, and each of us has a special place in God's kingdom. That's not a cliche. That's a theological and ecclesiastical reality. I'm always astounded by the way the Apostle Paul talks about the church in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, we as the local church, we are the the body of Christ. We are his body. Jesus is the head. We are the body parts. And he says, we're growing up together, Ephesians 4.16, by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. I think we often talk about sanctification as if it's an individual sport, like something I'm doing by myself. And it's always surprising when the Bible talks about it as a team sport. It's something that we're doing together as the local church. We, the local church, will rise or fall together. Never trust somebody who has an edge about the local church, who's easy and quick to to slight and to slander the local church. Never trust a parachurch ministry that's operating with this chip on the shoulder about the local church because God says this is his design to grow us up together in faith. We need each other to become fully mature in Christ. If you have a bunch of Peters wishing they had a ministry like Tabitha, our church is going to be stunted. And if you have a bunch of Tabithas wishing she could do what Philip was doing, then we as the church can't grow as God has intended. So I plead with you, disciple, and myself as well, grow where God has planted you. Take your family history take your circumstances, take the things you hate about, your looks and your personality, and let God transform this into a beautiful thing that he will use for his glory in this place. Because if your joint is not working perfectly, then the whole body is stunted in our growth together. I can't grow as a believer until God is using us together in this body as his disciples to grow. Everybody's unique in that. So these disciples are unique, but number two, both disciples start to look like Jesus. They come from different places, but they both start to look a lot like Jesus, the one that they follow. Think about Peter. You hear a little bit about him in these paragraphs. He starts to talk and and sound like Jesus. It says in Lydda, he tells a paralyzed man to rise and make his bed. And man, that sounds really familiar. I feel like I heard that before. And I did back in John chapter five when Jesus saw a man by the pool and he said, rise, take up your mat and walk. So Peter watched Jesus and now Peter does what Jesus does. In Joppa, Peter gets to this upper room and he tells everybody to get out of the room and then he kneels down to Tabitha and he tells her, get up, rise up from the dead. And that sounds really familiar and it should because Jesus did the same thing in Mark chapter five. To so Peter, James, and John, he cleared everybody out of the room. He knelt down by Jairus' daughter and he told her, arise and walk. Peter's ripping all of his moves out of Jesus' playbook. What Peter saw Jesus do, he now turns around and does himself. And that means that Jesus' power here, Jesus' miraculous power here, is not just in healing somebody, not just raising the dead. Jesus' power is in Peter, because you've got this this hardwired man who's always putting his foot in his mouth, now starting to look and sound like Jesus himself. That's a miracle. Tabitha does this too. Verse 36 says she was full of good works and acts of charity. Where would she get something like that? Why would she think that when you become a Christian, you should start pouring your life out for the poor and the marginalized? Where does that come from? She heard it in Jesus. Jesus starts his ministry by saying that he will proclaim the good news to the poor and set captives free. Jesus was regularly found on the margins ministering to those in need, the poor, the lame, the destitute. Jesus carried a money bag. He entrusted it to Judas and it was in part to serve and give towards the poor. Jesus took special concern for widows. He raises the widow of Nain's son and he on the cross gives John to his widowed mother to take care of her. And now Tabitha, who maybe has never seen Jesus or met him in person. We have no evidence of Jesus coming down to this area and we don't know if she went up to Jerusalem and saw him at some point. But she has heard enough to become his disciple, and she has heard enough to know what it looks like to follow in his footsteps. The more she follows Jesus, the more she looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, talks like Jesus, gives like Jesus, spends her time like Jesus. That's discipleship. In a nutshell. That is what discipleship is. It's going to look different from disciple to disciple depending on where you're coming from and where God has gifted you, but we're all headed in the same place, and so there will be this eerie similarity between us. It'd be like if you accidentally stumbled upon your own family reunion and didn't know it. You showed up at the park, and you started meeting people, and they looked oddly familiar to you, And you were like, are you a Gentino? Are you a Gentino? No way, I'm a Gentino. Like we all kind of look the same. That's what the church is. Like you're watching somebody give their life away to the poor and you say that's not normal. You sound like a disciple and I watch someone else who's suffering, who should be fully consumed with their own suffering, but they're giving glory to God, and I say, that's not normal. You sound like a disciple. Something's vaguely familiar in this community that even though each of us is unique, we are all pointing ourselves back to Jesus. So every disciple's unique. Every disciple is starting to look like Jesus. Number three Both of these disciples ultimately point people away from themselves and towards Jesus. Discipleship is never an end in itself. You don't graduate from the school of discipleship. You don't get out of the crucible of discipleship. It's not an end. It's not a graduation. The end of this is Jesus. Jesus magnified, Jesus glorified in all things, Jesus himself being preeminent. That means wherever Peter goes from city to city to city, it says things like verse 35, people turn to the Lord. I love that description. It's like they're looking where Peter is looking and they wanna turn and see what Peter is seeing and they see this full, beautiful majesty of Jesus himself. That's what a disciple does. It gets the attention off of me and onto Jesus. But I think it's really Tabitha's version of this that shines in our passage because look at her funeral in verse 39. This thing gives me goosebumps. When Peter arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. That's a powerful funeral. Let's talk about funerals for a moment. Every time I go out of town, my mom wants to talk about funerals. She don't want to talk about my funeral. She wants to talk about her funeral. Like if I go out of town, I'm going to forget what we talked about. And it's like, I got We're going to sing all saints who from their labors rest and we're going to serve Bojangles. I got it, Ma. We got the funeral, okay? But funerals are important. You're thinking about the last chapter so you know how to live this chapter. And at Tabitha's funeral, all the people she has touched in Jesus' name are there. And all the good works that God prepared beforehand for her to do are these beautifully woven garments, and they are tangibly present at that moment. And the cost of her death to that community is seen on all these widows' faces. I bet there's a story behind every widow, every garment, every act of mercy that could be told and retold in Jesus' name, that's a disciple's life well lived. Upward to God by being outward to other people. So let me ask you, friend, member of Prez, disciple, will my death be costly to this community? Not somewhere out there will my death cost this body of believers, this local church, something dearly. Will there be a gaping hole where I have served? Where Will there be a grief and a loss for what God has done through me in this place? We like to quote Psalm one sixteen fifteen 15 at funerals. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You could translate that costly in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Are you and I so animated by Christ for each other that our deaths are costly, expensive, hard to replace in this place? That is a disciple's call. I got a friend who does mercy ministry in our denomination. He runs the disaster relief wing of the PCA, Arkley Hooten is his name. And he's got this daily practice that he gets from the parable of the Good Samaritan to wake up every morning and ask the question, who is my neighbor? Now, what is the least I need to do? Now, what can I get away with today? Who is my neighbor? That's beautiful. And when that brother dies there will be a hole where he served in this place. God's gonna fill it in new surprising ways. He always does. No disciple is irreplaceable. Don't get that thought. But the loss of every disciple is costly because it's a joint, a limb, a ligament in this place, and you don't lose it without feeling its pain. So these disciples are unique. They look like Jesus. They point to Jesus. Let me give us a final thought in closing because both disciples converge in one of the greatest demonstrations of Jesus's power. We can't overlook the fact that we're just a week out from Easter and we already have another resurrection. Somebody else gets up from the dead. And I think when we first read our Bibles, we kind of think that miracles happen everywhere in our Bibles, like everybody in the Bible is doing miracles all the time, crazy stuff happens. But a slow, close reading of the Bible shows us actually miracles were kind of rare. They happened at certain times, usually connected to certain people, certain seasons that God was doing a special ministry in history, and so they're rare. And what's really rare in the Bible is bring somebody back from the dead. So I want us as a group to name all the people in the Bible who are brought back from the dead, okay? This isn't fair because we need to close the service, but we're doing a Bible quiz. Some of us are believers, some of us aren't. Some of us have never cracked open a Bible, that's okay. But none of us can leave until we name every person who's risen from the dead. And it's a competition, okay? I'm splitting the room in here. Starting on the left half, you tell me someone risen from the dead, we'll kick it to the right half, we'll see how far we can go. Left half, Lazarus, Lazarus. okay, don't give away answers. You guys. What? I heard Lazarus. Tabitha, Tabitha. okay, yes, from our passage, wonderful. Back to y'all. Jesus, thank you, I thought someone was going to miss that. Okay, back to y'all. Centurion's son was healed but not dead. Can we get a dead person? What? Widow of Nain. There we go. Boom. Back to y'all. Thank you, Jairus' daughter. Back to y'all. Oh, it's getting heated in here. Three to two. The widow's son. That, the Old Testament counts, yes. Yeah, the widow's son, thank you. Excellent, yes. No apologies. Old Testament. Three to three, y'all. We could do this all day. Back to y'all. Anybody, anybody? This is, now we're bottom of the barrel stuff here. When the body was thrown into the grave and it came back alive? Exactly. Exactly. The the bones. Yeah, the dry bones. We'll leave that for a second. But but when somebody's dead body was thrown into Elisha's grave, he came back alive. Four for y'all. Back to you guys. Uh, the dry bones. We're not doing the dry bones. <laughs> That's some apocalyptic stuff. We're not going there. <laughs> How about the dry bones? What? The dry bones. Yeah, not going there. Not even for my son. All right. Jesus. The what? That's true. I wasn't really counting that either, but that's also true. (laughs) Here's what I got. We'll call it a tie. I've got Elijah raises one person, the widow's Zarephath's son. I've got Elisha raising one person, the Shunammite woman's son, plus that thing with the Israelite that fell in his grave and popped back alive. Jesus outdoes everybody and raises three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, widow of Nain's son, Lazarus, and then he brings himself back to life. Paul raises one person. Did anybody say Eutychus? Were we missing that? We got Eutychus, and then Peter raises Tabitha. So besides Jesus, I've got eight people that come back from the dead, okay? In a thousand pages in our Bible, in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who died in Bible history, only eight people die and come back alive. Now I'm going to submit to you, and I have nobody backing me up on this that I can find, that Tabitha's death and resurrection was different than everybody else's. In everybody else's resurrection, it was a family that was asking to have a loved one return to them. So it's Lazarus' sisters running after Jesus. It's those who are experiences, the synagogue ruler asking for Jesus to come. And Jesus performs a resurrection, somebody performs a resurrection to give a loved one back to a family who would have been incredibly grieved to lose that person. But Tabitha was different. She was resurrected because her loss would be too great for the church not her family to bear. It's not the family that sends people running after Peter. It's the church. And when Peter shows up in the upper room, it's not the family so much that's gathered there. It's the church. And widows are shoving garments in Peter's face, showing him this woman is worthy of a resurrection. There's a bunch of great and wonderful saints in the Bible that die and stay dead Dozens of them that I can think of. Peter himself, who's the rock that Jesus builds the church upon. I think about Paul, the missionary that dies and stays dead. I think about the apostle John and his apocalyptic visions. He dies of old age. And if God brought him back to life, he could have written another book of Revelation. And how cool would that be? And all these people die and stay dead, but not Tabitha. She is too precious to lose. God has more work for her to do in this tiny backwater town in Joppa among widows whose names we never learn. She is too valuable to the church. And I pray that God will raise up women in this place who will start ministry lead ministry, do mercy in such a radical, beautiful way that they would be of grave and mortal loss to this church. May he do so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, if you're bringing people back from the dead, what can't you do? There is resurrection power in this place. Sin and death are defeated. They were our last enemies. And if that's true, we can live with a new kind of freedom to serve you and be your disciples. Each uniquely gifted, each doing the work that you have called us to do in the place that you have put us. Let us grow up together as a mature body into full health, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.